and welcome back to the latest episode of the Master of None podcast. I am your host, Stephen Murphy, as always, and joined by a new guest this week. We have a golf episode uh, for you out there today, and we're joined by Mike Carroll from from Cork originally. Uh, Mike, so thank you very much for joining us. How are you? My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me on. No problem. So Mike is a strength and conditioning coach, as I said, from Cork, but now based in Irvine, California, uh, working with uh, golfers, elite and and uh, amateurs alike. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit, kind of Mike, a bit about your background and sort of you know what you do on day to day basis? Yeah. So basically, I am a strength and conditioning coach who is obsessed with helping golfers get better um, and helping the everyday person just get in better shape and healthier, essentially. Uh, I've been specializing in golf for the last five years. I started a business called Fit for Golf when I was still based in Cork. And shortly after I started that, I saw a job opportunity come up in Irvine in California to work in a gym called Hanson Fitness for Golf. That was in 2016. And at the time, I was doing a lot of personal training with general population clients. I was training a couple of different sports teams um, and I was training some different golfers in the area. And when the job opportunity came up, I got in touch with the employer. I ended up getting a visa sponsored through them and I moved out. It was actually almost a year later when I moved out because I was the strength and conditioning coach for the Cork Lady footballers and their season had just started and I decided that I wanted to do the season with them before I moved to the US. Um, and those visas take a while to organize and all that anyway. So landed in, in California in October of 2016. And I've been there since. So nearly five years now. Um, and when I got here, basically my work was split in that I was working part-time hours for the Jim Hansen Fitness for Golf. And that was mainly training general population, people who were kind of mid-handicaps and wanted to get better at golf and also get in better shape for, for life in general. And we had some kind of junior uh, classes as well for enthusiastic juniors that wanted to sort of get started with some fitness stuff outside of their, I suppose, normal golf lessons. But um, cost of living here is very high and I wasn't working many hours and I probably didn't do enough uh, forecasting of finances before I moved here um, so I had to do something to earn some extra cash or I would have been probably moving home relatively quickly so I had the business fit for golf already um, and I had the social media pages that I'd been using to advertise stuff in Cork but I hadn't delved into any kind of like online work um, so that's when I started the fit for golf app and that I basically like started selling my first program on that in June in uh, January of 2017. And that kind of started to take off. Um, each year was, was much, much better than, than the preceding one. And basically, um, it ended up becoming like my primary income, but I, had to maintain working for the gym that sponsored my visa here because to work in the US, you have to have a host employer. You can't just set up on your own, basically. Um, but eventually I was able to apply for a green card and it was approved. So just about six months ago, I stopped working for the Gym Hanson Fitness for Golf and I do the Fit for Golf stuff now full time. So I'm, I'm basically out on my own in the US now. 
Right, so you're an American citizen then? I will, be a, I, I will be a permanent resident. I'm still waiting on the paperwork kind of come through, but the case has been approved. And basically what that means is that you have permanent residency, basically the same, same rights as a citizen. You just can't vote and you need to stay in the country for six months out of each year to kind of maintain your residency. But um, what's really nice about it is that you never have to worry about visas expiring again. And you also never have to worry about, not that my situation was bad or anything, the place I was working in was absolutely fantastic. But if you're on a visa and things aren't going well in your job, you're basically stuck. Because if you decide to leave your job, that means your visa is void. But I don't have to worry about that now, which is is very reassuring, basically. Brilliant, yeah. And was that, a, was that a tough decision then to leave Ireland and go to California? I know, obviously, it's... It sounds very glitz and glamorous. It's the West Coast of America, but it is a long way away. It's not exactly, you know, hop on a flight and come home for the weekend kind of thing. Um, no, like it wasn't a tough decision, to be honest. I was out of college just a couple of years. I was in my early 20s. You know, I had no kids. I was single. You know, like things were going well at home. I had no, nobody depending on me or anything like that. And it was really just a chance to travel and, you know, work, work, I suppose, in the field of work that you were most passionate about and kind of wanted to see you know what the future might might hold i suppose and the possibility of doing a kind of full time in the us plus the good weather you know was made it pretty easy and even though it's not particularly close to home like the the sort of business i built up in ireland if things hadn't gone well after say like three or six months it would have been easy to just get a flight home and kind of pick up where i left off so there wasn't really anything to lose as such you know yeah, no, that makes sense. And what was it that attracted you to golf in particular? Because as you said, you worked with camogie teams, worked with football teams. You know, you had, you had certain options out there, but golf seemed to obviously, you know, tickle your interest a little bit more than these other sports. What was it that drew, drew you to it? Um, well, number one is that I'm, I, I love golf. Like, I'm a massive golf fan. Um, I was a real golf nut for a while during my teenage years. Um, and kind of from that I kept a, a really keen interest in and I didn't play it much in college I was playing Gaelic football but um I picked it back up after college and just really enjoyed working in it and um the other thing too is like that there was nobody really doing any high quality SNC work in golf like basically every SNC coach in Ireland is working in GAA you know like there that's that's the market that everyone's trying to get a, a foothold in and it was just really saturated the other thing too, like with GA, is that our soccer or rugby or hockey, kind of like other sports that I've done a, a little bit of work in, is that there's lots of elements that go into preparing, say, athletes and teams for that sport. Whereas in golf, like you're really dealing with just one sporting action. Like really what you're you're working with is the golfer and their golf swing as such. Like it's it's separate from you know the the short game and putting, like the SNC coach isn't having much input there, you know. Um and what I really kind of like, what resonates with me is um, I always wanted to do some work in sports where kind of your, your say, uh, results were given back to you either like, you know, by a stopwatch, if it's in something like sprinting or distance running or a, a jump height or a jump distance or a, or a throwing distance in track and field. And one of the things that's really nice about golf is like the big thing for S&C coaches is really looking at players like clubhead speed and ball speed and distance, you know. So having a kind of metric like that that gives you, you know, really clear feedback on exactly how your how your golfer, how your athlete is progressing, 
is something that I loved, you know, in, in the GEA sometimes or in soccer or rugby, it's like, how do you actually know if the team has progressed? Because, you know, you can have a couple of bad breaks or, you know, you can just come up against a team that's, you know, playing unbelievably well. And it's really hard to get objective measures in terms of like, is this team better prepared for the sport than they were before I started working with them? And sure, there's some measurements you can take, like in the gym and you can do fitness tests and all this stuff, but there's just so much goes on with it, you know? Um, whereas I really liked that golf, you know, was a little bit more of almost like a controlled environment when you're when you're dealing with, say, like golf swing metrics. I know there's obviously lots of variability goes into golf scores, but that was kind of it. Like, I was really interested in it. I knew that there was a huge market for it because it wasn't being done well at all. Um yeah i just i just was really interested in it essentially was the was the weather a big climate uh, a bit of a culture shock or how did you deal with that for the it first was season? it was definitely different but it wasn't hard to adapt to um it's it's amazing like the novelty definitely hasn't worn off like there's it's just unreal like it's it's probably i don't know like it definitely gets up to, I'd say maybe like 15 or 18 degrees pretty much every day, even in the middle of winter, like, and you've, you've blue skies and sunshine, it gets, gets cold, like in the evenings and in the mornings when, when it's dark, um, it's kind of like a desert climate that way, but, um, it's beautiful. Like you could play golf. There's probably a max of five or 10 days a, a year where golf wouldn't be an option. Like, you know, either due to some rainstorm or some windstorm or something, but, that's basically it yeah i'm very jealous when i hear stuff like that because at the moment even here in ireland it's starting to get like it's been dark the last half an hour here and it's only quarter past eight and it's it's uh yeah you have a few months really that's that is that that is one thing that ireland has that we don't get here like even in the peak summer here it probably gets dark at about quarter past or half eight like that's the latest you'll ever have where it's bright um i know in ireland it can be 11 11 at night sometimes in the middle of summer um but other than that, like things, things are great, like weather-wise. Um, you, I want to talk. You worked your way kind of up to the levels of the TPI, which is the Titleist Performance Institute. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff about that. Can you kind of tell us more what what that goes in, what goes into that, uh, and then basically working your way up to the levels? Yeah. So TPI is, as you said, the Titleist Performance Institute, which is basically an educational resource for people who work with golfers that are interested in doing some continuing education. It was created by um, two two guys. One is Dr. Greg Rose and the other is Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips is a golf instructor. That's his background, like is all golf. Uh, He's actually John Rams, golf instructor. And Dr. Greg Rose was originally a chiropractor, but then got very much into like physical therapy, sports performance and biomechanics. And really what they tried to do was develop um, this educational pathway where you could get anyone who works with golfers, whether it's a swing instructor, a physio, a trainer, a chiropractor, even a regular doctor, um, to basically have a pretty sound understanding of the main things that are going on in the golf swing from a mechanics point of view and how a person's body can interact with those mechanics and their their kind of big slogan is the body swing connection so essentially if you're coaching someone their philosophy is that before you're trying to coach someone you need to know what this person's body is capable of um 
and they've come up with a, I think called the big 12 swing characteristics um, that they teach you in the um, level one certification. And it's, it's things that kind of a lot of people would be familiar with, like things like early extension or over the top and things like this that have big impacts on, I suppose, someone's quality of ball striking or maybe likelihood for injury. And then they teach you a series of physical examinations that you can basically use to detect if a person might be more likely to exhibit these swing characteristics, uh, which can be really useful feedback for that person's coach. If you're not their coach, or if you are the coach, you can, you can do the screening before you start working with someone. Um, so that's their level one pathway. It basically gets everybody who works with golfers all on the same page. And their main thing that they teach you is this big 12 swing characteristics and what they call the body swing connection. So essentially how to assess a golfer from a kind of mobility standpoint. And then when you start going to level two and level three, you actually branch off. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach. So my pathway was their fitness professional route. So I did level two and level three in their fitness, but there's a level two and level three golf for a golf instructor. There's a level two and level three junior. If you specialize, you know, in a junior academy or something like this, and there's a level two and level three medical if you're a physio or, you know, a doctor or something like this. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're basically the, I would suppose, the, the leaders in the golf education world for people who are trying to learn a little bit more about how, the, how, the, how anatomy, like how someone's body uh, interacts with the golf swing, really. And they've done lots of testing in their headquarters in Carlsbad in San Diego, where they have really high-tech 3D motion capture um, and basically have, you know, can give real in-depth analysis of, of that sort of thing. Nice, yeah. I yeah, I've I've seen videos on it before and it does seem really fascinating kind of stuff. And then I know you also then got accredited in twenty fifteen with the UK Strength and Conditioning Association, which I think I've seen you say there's only a handful of people in Ireland that would have that accreditation. Is that correct? Uh, at the time, there wouldn't have been many. I'm sure it's more popular now. I think um, Satanta College, uh, people listening are probably somewhat familiar with Satanta College. Um, they started uh, Bachelor of Science, a four-year strength and conditioning degree, um, which was the first one in Ireland, um, probably around that time, maybe even a little bit earlier. But I think they try and prepare some of their students for that accreditation. Um, but yeah, there's, there definitely wasn't many people in Ireland at the time had that. I think it was really just people who were working in um, professional roles for the IRFU. So maybe the strength and conditioning coaches for uh, the provincial teams, the, like Ulster, Leinster, Connacht and Munster. Um, I could be wrong. There might have been 20 or so, but it was, it was a handful. Like it wasn't a lot. It's, it's, a, it's an exceptionally difficult accreditation. There's about an 80% failure rate um for the first time someone does it um and it's it's really i suppose something that you need to have if you've any aspirations of working in professional sport uh, in a professional team sport in the uk or ireland or europe that's one of the things they'd be looking for if you ever wanted to go and work in you know the premier league either soccer or rugby or, or something like that oh it's, it's an exam is it yeah so you have to go to the uk for a one-day exam there is four different modules some of it is practical where you're coaching and you're being assessed by one of their assessors basically on your 
coaching delivery and knowledge. You also have a case study that needs to be a retrospective look at an actual real training case study that you did with a player, either an individual sport athlete or a team sport athlete, laying out exactly what you did with them over, I think it was a three-month spell, how you kind of came up with the assessments that you'd use to measure their progress, your what's called biomechanical and physiological analysis of the sport. So basically what type of movements are involved in the sport and what types of energy systems are being used um, and then talking through exactly how you progressed it throughout the three months and um, any changes you made, any things that came up and you're basically just getting grilled by the assessor uh, trying to catch you out really, but um, it all, it all went fine. Like it was, it was okay. Nice. one. I'm sure that felt good to pass that knowing uh, yeah. how many people fail. Yeah, it was, it, it was definitely nice. Like, it's just, you know, it's, I, everybody is experienced in some sort of exam that they just don't want to do, like, you know, the driving test or something like that. Like, you're just nervous before it, hoping you get through it. And, you know, it's, it's nice when you do. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about uh, the business you set up, as, you, as you've already spoken about, the Fit for Golf, uh, which as of today, as, as I was saying, has a new customer, which is me. Uh, so I'll be a very good test subject for um, for how good it is, Mike, because uh, not flexible, not in good shape, uh, just sort of everything that's bad about the average golfer I am. Uh, and I want to talk about that average golfer, like, you know, the man or woman who plays once a week, rarely has time to practice, has, has those kind of nagging injuries, can you talk about how much these players and myself included can benefit from these small changes that you kind of you know promote on the on the application? Yeah, definitely. Like I think anybody who plays golf is you know if they've played a decent amount of golf or watched a decent amount of golf, it doesn't take a genius to figure out like that. Our physical capabilities are going to have a huge bearing on how well we can swing a golf club. And obviously how well we can swing a golf club is going to have a huge bearing on, you know, how well we can play golf really. So I think that people, especially the type of person that you outline there, someone, you know, who isn't particularly athletic or, you know, is maybe it's been a couple of decades since they've been involved in any other types of sports and things like that. And they've started to get less flexible. They've definitely started to get weaker and less powerful, by working on those things, it can have a really big transfer to, to your golf performance, basically, you know, um, and it really works, I think, from, from three different kind of avenues is that number one is it just helps people hit the ball further. Like if, if you can get the average golfer hitting the ball 20 yards further with their driver and maybe a club longer with their irons, basically making the golf course way shorter it's like moving up a tee box or two you know um which which definitely makes it a little bit easier to hit greens and regulation and then you know you're two putting for par rather than trying to you know pitch and putt for par which is massive um it can some of the exercises can really help a kind of new or beginner golfer get a little bit of a feel for how their body should be moving in the golf swing so some things like kind of light med ball throws and some banded rotation work and things like that can be very useful for people who are unfamiliar with how the body moves in the golf swing. Um, expert golfers usually already have those things, you know, deeply learned. Um, and then the other one is if it's someone who is either after getting older uh, or are losing some of their physical condition or if else it's more a really competitive player who practices and plays a lot, it can be really, really useful for clearing up aches and pains and nagging injuries because 
that's one of the things that makes it really hard to both enjoy golf or make progress with it. Like the two biggest complaints that I get from, say, the average, say, club golfer, you know, who's maybe, let's say, I don't know, let's just say 45 to, let's say, 75. They play, you know yourself, like the local person at the club, they might play twice a week, practice once a week. They're probably playing off, you know, high single figures to, you know, the mid-teens or something like that. And the two things that they always talk about is they notice that they're starting to lose distance. So the game is getting a little bit harder. Like, I don't think it's much fun hitting, you know, driver and wood and coming up, you know, 15 yards short of a lot of the par fours in your course. Uh, just makes it really challenging. Um, and then the other one is people saying that, you know, they'd like to practice and play a bit more, but when they do, they're getting pains in their hip or their knee or their back or their shoulder. Um, and that's that's what you're trying to do, basically, is get people in better physical condition so that they can play better, um, be in less pain from niggling injuries and maybe increase how long they can play golf for too. You know, I think a lot of people kind of maybe start giving up golf when they're getting to their later years because they're they're losing a little bit of enjoyment because they're not as good as they once were. Um, and they might, you know, just find that the aches and pains are, are making it not not worth it really. Is there a is there the most common sort of issue that people come to you with? Is there a, a or like a nagging injury? Is it the back? The back seems to be always coming. Because yeah, the, always the, rotating around it. In, in amateur golfers, it's the it's generally the lower back is what causes the most issues. Uh, in expert golfers, it's often the wrist or the elbow. Um, there's a couple of reasons. Like is the first one is that lower back pain and injuries are just extremely common in the general population. Anyway, pretty much everybody deals with it at some point. And then when you combine, you know, people who aren't in the best physical condition with a sport, that's very unnatural really in terms of how we swing a golf club, like our, our lower back isn't really designed to, to rotate at high speed particularly well. So if we go from, you know, sitting at a desk for, or maybe say sitting at a desk plus driving for 70 hours a week. And then we're onto the driving range on a Friday night and we hit 80 balls to try and get ready for Saturday and Sunday's round. You know, there's basically just too much stress coming onto the area relative to what it can tolerate. And uh, we start to break down a little bit, you know? Um, so the lower back is definitely one that people complain about, but lower back pain, excuse me, can be very complicated. Um, but oftentimes if it's, if it's clearly um, aggravated by a specific activity, like practicing golf or, or playing golf, there's usually things then that you can do that, that have a very uh, big impact on how it feels. Oftentimes, if you can get people a little bit more mobile in their hips and their upper back, then they can rotate a little bit better from those areas and they don't try and rotate from their lower back as much. So that's often one of the things that people run into problem with is if they're very tight in their hip rotation, and most people will call it shoulder rotation, but it's really your thorax or your rib cage that you want to rotate from. If you can't rotate well from those areas, you might be trying to get more rotation from your lower back, um, something that it's not really designed to do particularly well, or you might just have very, very weak muscles and, and low muscle conditioning in the area. Um, so usually like just getting someone on a fairly basic plan where they're working on mobility of the main joints and strength in the main muscles that are being used, usually they see, they see a positive improvement.
Yeah, I've said the word uh, thorax. I didn't even know existed until today because I was I was stretching it out uh, <laughs> on the first day of the plan. Uh, That's why I so, said ribcage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 amazing the different. But yeah, I think the average golfer, no more than myself, forgets that some parts of the body are connected to other parts of the body, and they need to both be in sync. <laughs> I think we forget. Yeah, that exactly. Sense. And even the other thing then too with amateur golfers, like is um, their say physical um let's say their current physical state is definitely one um, element of it. So is golf swing technique, like amateur golfers who, you know, never really say might've learned, let's say an efficient or biomechanically sound way to swing the club might be using certain parts of their body way more than say is ideal. So now that area is going to be dealing with a lot of stress relative if they, improve their mechanics a little bit they you know put less stress on that area and use other areas that are designed to do that a little bit more you know yeah but you made a great point like sitting at a desk humans were not designed to either sit at a desk for eight hours a day as you said even more so if you've got to commute so that's obviously yeah, yeah and it's, it's even just it's it's not even that sitting is say that bad like it's it's more just inactivity in general you know even if it's someone who say is standing all day or walking all day their body's still not really getting conditioned for, you know, like high speed rotational movements. So if we're not really used to it and then we go in kind of spurts where we might have an hour of a very high volume of, you know, fast rotational movements, hitting golf balls, that's where we can start to run into some issues. You know, it's almost like trying to cram for the test. It's like, I don't do anything for maybe seven days, but then I only have an hour free to practice. So I'm going to hit a hundred balls in that hour. And you're going from zero to very high stress and the, the body doesn't really like that. No, definitely not. Uh, you, you also mentioned like, you know, stretching, how important stretching can be. Even five minutes stretching before a round, the difference that could make. Because we've all been guilty, me included, your tea time's at one o'clock in the day, you rock up in the car, 10 to one, get the bags out, first tea, and then you wonder why you, you either hit it 150 yards because your body's not warm or, you you know, it's out of bounds. And then by the third hole, you're actually a bit warmed up and stuff. So, as you said, even five minutes of stretching like, can make a big difference. Yeah, definitely. And kind of what's important, too, like without confusing people too much or trying to get too technical, is that it's actually not say what most people would um, view as traditional stretching that I would say is very useful. It's really trying to do exercises that are a bit more movement orientated. So rather than say holding, you know, a particular position, like we've all seen, you know, you put your foot up on a bench or something like that and hold it for 15 or 20 seconds and do both sides and stuff like that, where we're trying to stretch and hold it and go further that's not really doing a whole lot to prepare us for say a real dynamic activity where we're moving through a big range of motion. We're doing it at quite high speed. So generally, instead of prescribing that type of static stretching, I try and prescribe more um, movement orientated stretches where rather than holding a particular position, you might do 15 reps of something where you're always moving and trying to bring a particular joint or or area of your body through a bigger range of motion so like a simple example to for people to consider would be like we've all seen you know the stretch where someone say grabs their arm and pins it across their chest and maybe holds it for 20 seconds so rather than doing something like that you might do like 15 arm circles where you're going forwards and backwards but you're always moving 
or rather than say, you know, going down and touching your toes and holding it for 30 seconds, you might go down and up and touch your toes 15 times, but you're always moving or rather than doing, you know, the quad stretch where you pull your heel up to your backside and you're holding it there rather than doing that for 20 seconds, each side, you might do 10 or 15 squats or lunges. So always things where you're basically breaking down the movements that happen in the swing and you want to be moving through them. And what's nice about when we start moving a bit more is we're also getting our heart rate up, getting our body a little bit warmer. And as we get warmer, we start to move better. Um, our muscles start to relax a little bit and um, we can generally move with, with more speed, more power and actual more, more coordination too. Cause we've essentially practiced the movements that we're about to do in our golf swing rather than just holding a series of stretches statically. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I've I've been lately trying to do that, and definitely it's it's so much better when you're on the first tee, not not stiff, uh, you know, as a board. Uh, you also work with professional golfers and college golfers who play to a, a very high standard. Mike, do any of them players ever come to you? And are you ever are you ever shocked by maybe how how little they have done on that side of things? How rigid they might be, or you know, how uh, just they haven't? They've just been using pure talent alone at this stage. Um. Yeah. So. In, in professional golf, even at the PGA Tour level, um, we see a lot of very successful golfers who are at an extremely high skill level, but have not really developed their physical capabilities that well at all. Um, I think that's going to change a little bit because there's so many people trying to play professional golf now because it's, it's basically a career where like like a lot of professional sports like they've they've just been basically supersized in terms of how much money you can make and and how i suppose serious and professional they've come so yes there's people who are who are playing to an exceptionally high level haven't really um exhausted their physical capabilities or their physical development because basically in golf you don't have to like being being in a really good physical state is definitely advantageous but we've seen but it's it's only one element because the type of physical condition you're in it doesn't really dictate how skillful you can get in parts of the game like your putting your chipping your pitching you know your it's definitely going to start having more of an effect then in terms like iron play and especially once we basically the further we get away from the hole the, the more of an impact it's going to have but definitely if you're exceptionally well skilled you can get away without being exceptionally well-developed physically like we've seen people getting to world number one and winning majors you know in this scenario but um it's going to get less and less common because golf is getting so competitive that it's too much of um it's basically one area of development that would be too much to not go after because there's going to be so many people now who i'm like living in the u.s for the last five years i, I see it so many people from a young age are really looking at maximizing all of the different things that go into elite golf performance, like physical conditioning to help them hit the ball further and do a greater volume of practice and play without getting injured. Um, things like, you know, mental development, they're getting dialed in with equipment. They know exactly what's going on with their swing because instruction's gotten so much better and we have access to really good technology like launch monitors. Um, so it's going to be really, really hard for the player who's relying on say talent to get past the, the dozens and dozens and dozens of players 
who were looking at their golf game almost like a business and really maximizing their, you know, their spread across all the different elements. But you, you, you do see golfers too starting to drop. Like there's definitely some of those on the PGA tour, but I wouldn't say that that's common. Like there's definitely more players on the tour now who are taking it seriously for sure. Yeah. I think, well, Tiger Woods in the modern age, you know, was the first kind of golfer who was, as you know, by all reports, hitting the gym twice a day, was up early doing weightlifting and stuff, and I think he has, um, you know, set the, paved the way for a lot of people. It just you mentioned there are a few golfers. You know, the the obvious one that stands out to me as an Irishman is Shane Lowry, because obviously Shane Lowry is you know major winner, going to be a Ryder Cupper now in a few weeks. Still carries a bit of weight on him, and not by no means in you know the best shape he could possibly be in. Is that something there where it's obviously that he's not, or can it be can looks be deceiving in that sense as well? Because I'm sure he's also very flexible, very, you know. Mobile. Yeah, it, exactly. Looks can definitely be deceiving. And what we need to be careful with is, you know, when people talk about, say, like fitness or being in shape, we have to keep that specific to the sport that the person is involved in. So you can be extremely, say, fit for golf or be in good condition for golf while carrying a little bit of extra body fat, because it's not like you're playing, you know, soccer or, or it's not like you're sprinting down the track where you need to say, carry that weight essentially. So as long as you have a golfer who is as mobile as they need to be to basically hit the swing positions that they're looking for, as long as they have enough strength and power to create the speeds that's necessary to be able to compete at the highest level. And as long as their body's in good enough condition that they can do as much practice and play as they need to, and they feel like that they're at, you know, basically really good energy to get through, you know, a week long event, which is really, really high energy output with all the practice rounds and, and practice off the course and maybe media obligations, the travel and all that sort of thing. So like, as long as someone is able to cover all those bases, the fact that somebody might be, you know, say 25% body fat rather than 18% body fat it's not really going to have a huge bearing on how well they can play golf. You know, um, like Shane has a really good strength and conditioning coach for the last few years. His name is Robbie Cannon. And like, you can see from the work that they've put in like that Shane is definitely in better shape, even just to the naked eye than he was, you know, like if you compare him to when he won the Irish open as an amateur, like 10 or 11 years ago, he's a much different athlete. He's after getting much stronger, much more powerful. The fact, you know, that he doesn't look like, say, uh, you know, a Premier League centre midfielder or something like that doesn't, doesn't really matter for golf. And the other thing that's really important that a lot of people forget about is that you need to be really careful when you have an elite level golfer and changing their body mass and changing their body shape a lot because Shane Lowry or any golfer has learned how to swing a golf club based on their body proportions that they've had their whole life. So like, obviously Shane is, you know, say a slightly bigger golfer than most, you know, he's, he's not a, a thinner, you know, lanky body type basically. And he's clearly playing exceptionally good golf. So what the risk there would be is like, you say, okay, we're carrying a little bit of extra body fat, say maybe than most people would say, or some people would say that you should or whatever, but let's just say if over this off season, someone like Shane Lowry loses 10 kilos and they do it quite quickly, he's now going to have a different body. His weight, his body mass is going to be proportioned differently. And the golf swing is so precise that he might have very different feelings when he's moving that golf club. 
And if that starts to happen, like it can be a downward spiral very quickly. So I think they're actually probably right to not try and change things too drastically when he's playing so well. Like if it if it's a very um if it was a very um, incremental and very slow change in his body shape, which I think is actually happening, like that, that might be fine. But what you don't want to do is try and go to the extreme and risk, you know, basically losing whatever sense of coordination or balance or proprioception he has with the body he's learned how to play with, basically. Does that make sense? Like, as, if, if it was, you know, say like a health thing, um, let's just like so he's what in his mid-30s like let's say if he kind of stops let's play saying as a real serious you know major contender let's just say if that happens at 50 right he's another 15 years of elite level golf well then you know someone could maybe make the decision well for general health purposes maybe i should shed some pounds you know it doesn't really matter if my golf isn't as high as it was before my priority now is being as healthy as possible for the rest of my life not you know what's the best way for me to try and win you know more majors and more golf tournaments so it's definitely a toss up there you know yeah definitely and look it keeps him warm uh, during the cold events as well the next <laughs> body fat so. exactly yeah um, on the other scale then I want to talk about Rory McIlroy because Rory McIlroy um, you know is one of the longest players on tour but he's only five foot nine. you know but normally when you think of the longest hitters like Dustin Johnson Dustin Johnson six foot four you know incredible athlete can dunk a basketball that keeps getting thrown around when they talk about how good of an athlete he is which is which is unbelievably hard for anyone who Ireland for anybody in Ireland who isn't familiar with like basketball or trying to dunk a basketball it's 10 foot when 10 <laughs> foot is, a, is tall it really is high yeah. up there but yeah. at the same time like and I've I've watched way too many videos of his swing uh, not to be embarrassed because he's my favourite golfer but his hips make a weird motion through the hitting angle where they seem to almost rotate backwards uh, almost go against the grain and, and I've I've often wondered like you know when he gets to 40-45 his body might not be able to do that as efficiently as he obviously has been in his 20s and now I think he's 31 or whatever is that something that he might have to worry about come that certain age like, you, you know when these these golfers who make these incredible body movements because they like Rory's in the you know best possible shape he can be in when he does approach that 40 to 50 mark and the body which inevitably inevitably will slow down is that something that they would worry about now and or will have to change come the future I don't think it's something you would worry about now because there is no real way of predicting how his body is going to progress over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years um it would definitely be lunacy to try and change anything now so that maybe he'll be better at 45 or 50. But the thing that a lot of people kind of gloss over when they're looking at elite athletes making motions that say look extreme or that might be, you know, potentially high risk for injury or might be hard to maintain over a career is that these golfers have also been doing that for probably about two decades already. So their bodies have become extremely well adapted to these types of movements. So yes, if somebody else who's never done that and they're 35 or 55 tries to copy what Rory's doing, that's going to be very different stresses on their body compared to what it is on someone like Rory's body, because it's what he's always been doing, you know? Um, so I think because it's something that he's, his body basically has become very well adapted to because he's always been doing it. He's going to be really good at tolerating that, that stress because he's so used to it. It's like, 
you know, if you consider, say, the, the marathon runner that runs 100 miles a week and you're saying, like, sure, like, if you run 100 miles a week, won't you get injured? And it's like, well, this person started running, say, 10 miles a week when they were 16 and they've been, you know, building up to 100 miles over the course of 15 years. So it's it's fine to them. They're they're used to it, you know. It's the same idea with Rory and his swing, basically. Um, the reason he's able to generate so much distance, even with a kind of smaller frame, I think there's two kind of three things that really need to be looked at is so number one, and this is getting probably a little bit in depth, uh, but is, is muscle fiber type. So you can't tell what someone's fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fiber breakdown is by looking at them. So you can have someone who say looks like Rory, but they could be much more say slow twitch dominant. And even if they use the same types of movements that Rory moves, they're not making that driver clubhead go 122 miles an hour at impact, you know? Um, so I'd be willing to kind of guess that Rory's probably a little bit lucky with his genetics and that he probably has a pretty good fast twitch fiber percentage. Um, and then his, his golf swing technique is unbelievable. Like it's so efficient. And I'm not sure if there's much more you could do with Rory's swing to get any more speed and power out of the, the genetics he has, basically, you know, if anyone wants to watch the slow-mos, um, like there's obviously millions of them on Instagram and YouTube, something that's really interesting in Rory's swing is that if you watch in a slow-mo, as he's finishing his backswing, he does a much more pronounced squat move in transition than a lot of players do. So he's doing his backswing and then just as he's starting his downswing, even before he really starts rotating, you can, if you watch, say, his, his hips and his knees, they go into a mini squat like someone would do before they try and do a jump. Then he starts rotating. He stays down in that little squat move as he's rotating. And then late coming into impact, he really drives off those legs and you can see his whole body extends upwards. So he gets a lot of power from his legs compared to other players. And why don't other players do that? Because it's exceptionally hard to do and time and, and hit it well. You know, the other thing that I think that helps Rory with is if anyone listening is, you know, obsessed with uh, like the kind of track man launch monitor numbers and stuff like that. So what we always hear about for maximizing distance with the driver is a combination of high launch and low spin. And we get that by having an upward. Well, one of the things that allows us to do that is getting an upward angle of attack on the ball. So that's why people tend to tee the modern drivers quite high and have them up near their lead foot. And if you think of what Rory's doing as he's coming towards impact, he's getting that extension of his body up which helps him hit up on the ball and he gets an incredibly, he's a, he's a much um, more positive or upward angle of attack than a lot of tour players, which allows him to get really, really high launch and really low backspin on the ball, which basically means that it goes for a very long way through the air. And then when it hits the ground, because it hasn't had much spin, it also rolls out quite a lot. So he's, he's really an enigma there, like in terms of, I think he's got, blessed with genetics to a certain extent he's obviously worked extremely hard on his body too and his swing technique like is is amazing yeah i think tiger woods also has had a bit of a squat in in, in his swing back in the two is one of the few times i've seen it as well and it is as you said i i just assumed that everyone did it but the pros but it's not the case as you said it's the timing is just so difficult to try and exactly yeah and, or... yeah and i think i don't think anyone say like taught Rory that I think just when he started playing that's just something that you know 
for whatever reason, like when he started hitting golf balls, I think that was just how he started hitting them, you know? Um, and I don't think it was a case that it was, say, really coached into him or that anyone tried to, say, coach it out of him. Like another player, like with a swing that's really, you know, famous and well-documented is if you watch Adam Scott swing, um, he doesn't have, like, any of this squat move. Like, he, really, he stays really, really level. Uh, still generates a lot of speed, but he's a much taller man. He's probably about six three. Excuse me, with you know very with much longer arms. So, oftentimes, what we actually see is smaller players with smaller frames who end up hitting it very far. They've almost naturally learned ways to use their body or use mechanics that allow them to hit the ball really far. Justin Thomas would be another example. Like you see how much he launches off his lower body. That's probably because when they were younger, they were shorter than their competitors and they had to find ways to generate more speed. Whereas if you're someone like DJ or Adam Scott or Kepka and you were always pretty big and strong, it comes a little bit easier to hit the ball really long. So we tend to not see quite as dramatic, you know, um, uses of their body to generate power, basically. Not not always, but that's that's kind of something that you can look out for. No, a hundred percent. Yeah, I've I've watched all these videos way too often in, in my spare time watching uh, slow mo swings. You can learn from them for sure, though. Like it's it's definitely good study. Oh yeah, definitely. Because well, you hear all these coaching videos, uh, you know, telling you what positions to hit, and then you see the pros hitting those positions, and you're like, okay, that makes you know, I see why they do that. Yeah. Um, as uh, my next point was, I wanted to talk about you know golf ana- analytics and that and get geeky, but I feel like we've already we've already been there. So if you're listening to this and you're still listening and you're you're interested, then you're one of us. But uh, I want to talk about misinformation and myths in in golf, uh, Mike, because there seems to be a lot out there and. There's so much, well, like a lot of the world, there's so much information out there about everything. It's very hard to find what the right information is. And for the average golfer who's just trying to get better, so someone who's a 25 handicap, they will always be misled by YouTube's assess pitch for it. But we were talking about it a bit before we started recording the, you know, two tips that will help you drive a tree on the yards. And, you know, it's just not that simple, unfortunately, and it's not that easy. How as or how would you recommend the the average golfer like myself or my mates how do we find the right information and how do we try to you know wade through the rest of the crap um like not number one probably the best thing for someone to do if they're interested in getting better at golf is source out a local instructor that they can see in person that you know has a good reputation for for helping players get better at golf basically um some instructors are good instructors, but they don't mesh particularly well with your personality or maybe your learning style. So, well, you know, somebody might love a certain instructor and you might not get on what, that well with them. And, you know, we experience this in all kind of walks of life or, or all types of services. But definitely like a, a good golf instructor can just save you so much time and frustration in terms of things that you might be able to, you know, basically fast track because you can't pick it up yourself. Um, something that I think like if if somebody is listening this long they probably are a golf geek as you said um, like I've learned an awful lot from a guy called Professor Mark Brody who invented the strokes gained analytics that we hear about on the PGA Tour a lot um, what most amateurs don't know is that Mark Brody invented strokes gained to be used for amateur golfers so that they could use it to assess their own games and see basically how each element of their game was relative to scratch player 
and where they're losing the most strokes relative to them. Uh, he has a really good book that basically changed golf um, forever called Every Shot Counts, where he talks through how this was developed and why it's very different to the typical stats like fairways, greens and regulation, scrambles and number of pots. That's something I definitely recommend reading. Um, he has an app that comes with it that you can use to calculate and analyze your own strokes gain data, which is actually very simple to do. And you get really good objective information about where each element of your own game stacks up. And what's very interesting when you use that for a few rounds is that we're often very poor at assessing our own strengths and weaknesses. Um, it's, just, it's just something that golfers tend to not do that well. Um, they're, they're honestly like when I look at players who have made big improvements in their golf game, there's no question that it requires a certain amount of time invested by you. Like it's, it's not going to happen, you know, by magic, obviously it completely depends how low of a base you're starting from and how good you're trying to get, you know, how much time and kind of, um, let's say analysis you'll need to go into to try and optimize your game. But if you like the, probably the, the three biggest ones I would say for people is if you start keeping those strokes gained stats, which is much easier than most people realize, you can get a free trial to that app. It's called Golf Metrics, G-O-L-F-M-E-T-R-I-C-S. I don't make any money from, from promoting it here. Like I, I pay for it myself every year. I think it's a really good app. Um, but what's nice about that is then you have your baseline. You can see exactly where your game is in each category. If you're getting lessons from a good instructor, you can basically bring that info to them. And you like a simple example is let's say you have a 12 handicapper or a, who's trying to get better. That 12 handicapper might be an equivalent of a six handicap at driving. They might be an 18 handicap in approach play. They might be a four handicap in pitching. And they might be, I don't know what numbers I've come out with already. And they might, let's just be, say, a 12 in, in potting. And like this person's going to need to have a slightly different uh, concentration in their practice to someone who, let's say, is, you know, a 24 in driving and playing off 12 because they're, you know, slicing three balls out of bounds off the tee in every round. But they're as good as a scratch putter and chipper. And their approach is also, let's say, 80. So like there's there's definitely different types of, golfers out there that are at the same handicap level taking the objective stats will allow you to see where that is you can bring these stats to your golf instructor and you're able to say well these are where my biggest weaknesses are i know this for a fact they can you know uh, basically move their coaching towards the areas that you need most help on and then i would say what's huge for most people too is getting their body in better physical condition because even if you do the stats and you get good coaching and you practice how good you can get at golf is, and especially, well, not how good you can get at golf, but how good your ball striking can get is going to be large. A big part of that is going to be how good your physical capabilities are. You know, there's no, there's no point saying like, you know, like if we keep it realistic, you know, again, if we think of, let's say that 12 handicapper, who's maybe 45 to 65 or 70 years old, and they're kind of saying like, oh man, you know, I'd love to be able to drive it, you know, let's say 260. Well, there's going to be certain people who just, no matter how good they get with their technique, they just don't have the physical capabilities to do that, right? You know, and it doesn't even have to be 260. It might be someone who's currently driving at 200 yards and hitting it to 220 or 230 would help them a lot, you know? So if you can have someone 
take good objective stats, work with an instructor instead of getting, you know, stuck in the, the YouTube or Instagram rabbit hole um, and also work on your physical condition. Like I think anyone I've seen who's made big improvements in their golf game, they tend to be things that they work on. And probably the last one then is um, kind of slightly different, but, but definitely important is improving your, your mental game, like improving basically your basically everything to do with how you approach golf from a mindset point of view. So there's a lot of different ways that, that you can do that. Like there's a guy called Scott save, Fawcett. Save the, Mike, I want to ask you about that later on. So save, save all okay. your, save all your gems for that for later on. Cause I do have a okay. question about that. Um, but no, that's fantastic information there about, yeah. That, Cause as I said before, there's so much information out there. It's tough to know what's actually good for someone. So that's some great advice. Um, I want to throw some classic golf phrases at you. And then you can tell me it's a little game we're going to play called myth or real or fact or crap, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But these are the ones we've all heard throughout the years. And you can tell us if it's actually you know, legitimate or not. So the first one is it's all in the hips. We've heard that all so many times. Uh, is uh, that I, think that was from, I think that was from Happy Gilmore. Was yeah, it? exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, like the, there's no doubt that if you look at say expert golfers and higher handicap golfers, there would typically be a big difference in how they use their hips. Um, but I think it would be unfair to say it's all in the hips. There's generally just pretty drastic differences in how expert players and high handicap players move their body in general. I would say the hips are a big one, but how the hips move can be dependent on like what the person's intent is when they're trying to hit the ball. So sometimes the hips might be moving differently because of how the person moves their hands and the golf club. And if you're trying, if you just focus on getting the hips to move better, it mightn't be the solution. But so I would say it's, that's not, that's not quite accurate. I would say they're important, but what, what I would say, like the answer to that is like, it's all in the hips. Really. It's all in the club face. Like that's, that's rule. Number one is like, is what's happening with the club face strike is king as they always said yeah uh, that's that's more of a, a realistic one uh, and yeah. the second one isn't really to do with sports conditioning but i often hear it and i often get annoyed when i hear it golf is not a real sport do you ever get here this mike throughout your 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 day-to-day you know work? Oh, yeah all, all, all the time of course yeah um i think that's mainly from people who who don't play it as such you know um it probably doesn't do itself any favors with the dress codes um but I think it's it's pretty clear now that golf is a real sport. You know, it's 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 definitely slower than a lot of them. But you know, my my I suppose my real answer would be like, who cares what it's termed? Like, you know what I mean? If if you if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. It's like I don't know, are are darts and snooker real sports? Is golf a real sport? Like, my answer would be like, who cares? You know, you either you either like it or you don't. You play it or you don't. It's a very political answer, Mike. I was hoping some, for some <laughs> more for some more fire there. <laughs> what are you messing? Yeah. Uh, the next one is, and this one is one recently which I always thought was true, but then I've I've read some things and seen some videos that may, maybe that's not true. Keeping your head down in the swing, we hear this a lot, and I don't know maybe if you've done much research into yourself, but is that is that real or is that a load of crap? So I would err on the that's a load of crap side. Um, Annika Starnstam. David Duval, Henrik Stenson, Dustin Johnson. If you look at any of those players at impact, their eyes are not looking at the ball. Their head has already swiveled around towards the target. There's screenshots showing that. So when they make contact with the ball, their their eyes are not looking at it. 
what people really mean by head down, like or what they're trying to help people with is oftentimes people stand up out of a shot early. So earlier mid downswing, they stand up, they lose their body angles, and then they tend to hit the top of the ball or miss the ball. And the issue with keep head down is what it ends up doing. A lot of people is they get so fixated on their eyes, staying looking down at where the ball is and keeping their eyes there when the ball is gone, that it completely cuts off any type of rotation from their hips and their upper body. So they end up doing a movement where they come down and hit the ball, but they have no rotation through the ball. So I think a, a better concept for a lot of people would be to feel like that they rotate through the ball rather than feeling like they keep their head down. Yeah, that's, that's again, this is stuff that we've, gr- gr- growing up, that's what I always heard, so I just assumed it was true. Now it doesn't seem to be. The next one is, I think, the biggest one that's changed the last couple of years, which is drive for show, put for dough. Um, we've heard this a lot throughout the years, but the more we're seeing the likes of Bryson, you know, Bubba back in the day, DJ now, it's just not true, isn't it not, Mike? So the, pers- the person who wins a golf tournament each week on the PGA or European Tour And there's always exceptions to this. But in general, it's the person who has hit the ball extremely well and also putted reasonably well. You're never going to have really someone win a golf tournament by putting exceptionally and hitting the ball terribly. You often have people win a golf tournament who hit the ball extremely well and then just put average. Um, That's in terms of winning golf tournaments. Usually the winner comes from a group of people who hit the ball extremely well from tee to green, and then whoever putted the best out of them is your winner. Typically, you definitely see exceptions to this. You see people who hit it all right and have just a complete outlier of a putting week. Patrick Cantlay in the tournament he won before the Tour Championship was uh, an example of BMW. this. Yeah, exactly. So he gained 14 strokes just on the greens relative to the average player on the greens that week broke the pga tour record which is nuts billy horschel uh, on sunday won the bmw the other bmw the one on the european tour in wentworth he was 68 ranked 68th in putting for the week so basically he was almost last he was almost the worst putter out of all the players who made the cut but he had an exceptionally good ball striking week So there can definitely be a mix, but in general, it's you have to hit it well to give yourself a chance for your putts to be worth anything. If you're putting the lights out, but you're putting for par and bogey, it doesn't matter how well you're putting. Um, If you look then at like the season long statistics, that's where it changes a little bit because winning is a bit different to having a very good season and earning a ton of money. If you look at driving distance, um, strokes gained off the tee, strokes gained approach, and strokes gained tee to green, you'll definitely see a bigger correlation in terms of how good players are from tee box to green and money earned versus just how good players are on the green. And in a in an amateur standpoint, this is something I picked up from Mark Brody, is that if you group players into, say, players who average basically 70 per round, players who average 80 per round, 90 per round, and 100 per round, that's their average score. As you go through those 10-round buckets, Potting accounts for about 1.5 of the 10 shot difference in scale or scores between those players. So this is averages. If a 
someone who shoots, let's say the 80 handicap or the 80 shooter roughly shoots 10 over par, let's say, and the 70 shooter shoots roughly even par, putting generally accounts for about 1.5 shots of that 10 shot difference. And about six and a half of the shots is accounted for by T up to green. So 65% of the scoring difference between players of a 10 shot scoring differential is from shots outside hundred yards. And about 35% of the scoring difference is from shots inside 100 yards, including putting in general, but there's going to be outliers. And that's why I said, analyzing your own stats are very important here because you can have players on the extreme end of either of that spectrum, you know? Yeah, that's look, we've all been in the course and you've been playing with someone you maybe you don't know, you've been paired with them and they'll say after they hit a bad shot, they're like, Oh, I lifted my head and you know, they'll say some of these cliches. Do you get if you're ever playing with those people, do you feel the urge to to correct them or do you just let them go their merry way kind of thing? No, not really. Just just let them go their their merry way usually. Like if it's one of my, you know, close friends or something like that and you know, they ask for advice or you're, you feel comfortable suggesting it maybe but never really to a stranger or someone I don't know like you know it's 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 not my place and I hit enough bad shots myself so <laughs> yeah 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 the reason I, I I wanted to talk about that driver show putt for though is because I read an article on yourself you went within six months you went from a 5.1 handicap to a 0.4 handicap um, and you said without really practicing your putting and chipping what you mainly focused on was your, your driving getting to run three hundred yards and then your wedge play from like 140 yards because you sort of worked out that the course you play that was going to be your main shots to hit now to a lot of uh, I'm going to use this in air quotes for people uh, listening purists or traditionalists that goes against everything that they were maybe taught growing up or that they would have um, you know tried to play themselves and tried to learn themselves they would say it's the chipping and putting that scores and whatnot. can you talk to us a bit about that and why why that is why do people the average the purists think the, the, the opposite of what is actually true so there's definitely scope to improve by practicing any element of your golf game. Obviously, if you just isolate one area, improve that, keep the other areas the same, your, your scores will improve. You know, um, The reason why I think chipping and putting <clears throat> is one that people talk about a lot is that I think it's easier and faster to make an improvement in your golf scores by focusing on chipping and putting because it's not particularly hard to improve your putting from let's say three to six feet with a little bit of practice, which is like a huge separator in amateur golf is how, is how good players are in that range and how good players are from about 25 to 40 feet, basically like your speed control on longer putts and how good you can hold out short putts. You can make improvements there for sure. If it's someone who three putts a lot, you know, or misses a lot of four and five footers, and if you're someone who really struggles with, you know, with chipping and pitching, there can be big improvements there, especially I would say for like higher handicappers who have a lot of shots to come down to work towards par. But definitely like as you start going lower in the handicap ranks and you're trying to get closer to par or break par, there's just no way that you can overlook the importance of, of ball striking. The, the number one correlation between the number one traditional stat that correlates the handicap is greens and regulation, because no matter how good your, your chipping gets two putting is, is much easier than getting up and down. Even if you get good at really good at chipping and putting oftentimes getting up and down is still pretty hard. Like you need to hit a very good chipper pitch shot 
to give yourself a, a high probability of making the putt, you know, you need to remember that scratch golfers are about 50% from six feet. So even if you're, if you're missing greens and you're chipping to six feet each time, which is, you know, unless it's a very easy chip is probably a really good shot. You're only going to get up and down about half the time. Whereas if you can hit your second shot onto the green, even if you're hitting it to say 40 feet, you're going to two put way more often than you are going to get that chip up and down. Um, the, the other reason like why people go for the, the short game and the putting is that there's def, it's definitely more complex motions involved to improve like your, your driving and your iron play. Usually requires a little bit more expertise and oftentimes the improvements are a much longer process. Like it, it can be difficult to work on them. Um, and that's often why, why people shy away from it. But there's no doubt like that if you can improve, like it's, it's all important, but if you can improve your driving off the tee, and you can improve your approach play, it makes the game so much easier because you're, you're not really getting into trouble, you know? Nobody really gets into trouble on the green. Like, fair enough, you might have person who three putts occasionally or misses a short putt, but people aren't picking up penalty strokes. People aren't getting stuck in bunkers on the green, you know? Um, like, the way I would look at it is if you consider that we have, let's say, 14 drivers per round or 14, you know, tee shots on par fours and par fives per round. I know we might shoot like say somewhere between 70 and hundred, depending on who you are. Those 14 tee shots can have an exceptionally big influence on your, on your scoring probability for that day. You know, if you can hit 14 tee shots where you strike them reasonably well, you know, based on what's reasonably well for you is, and you're on the fairway or just in, you know, the basic rough, that's pretty good. But if you're hitting, if you duff a couple of them and now you've only got, gained 20 yards with your tee shots, or if you hit a couple of them into hazards or lose a couple of balls, like that's really, really detrimental to your score. Same thing out on the fairway. Like if, you know, you're hitting shots where you're duffing or thinning and, you know, you're not getting it anywhere near the green um, or you're putting it into hazards and things like that, that's how your score gets really, really high. Absolutely. When you're trying to like have, you know, your best day or really shave off the fine margins, hundred percent, you need to be good at chipping and putting. But I think for most people getting the ball onto the green is the bigger obstacle in golf than it is on the green. Um, you know, if, if you took a relatively beginner golfer and you gave them, let's say 20 minutes every day for a week on the putting green, I'm not saying they're going to be an exceptionally good putter, but they probably wouldn't be that bad they'd probably be able to get it around, you know, the nine hole course on the practice putting green, not too difficult. You know, they'd probably do okay. Whereas if you get that person for a week hitting golf balls, and now you put them on a 390 yard par four, how many shots does it take them to get to the green? You know, a, a lot basically. Um, so it's, that's, that's kind of it basically. I'm, I'm after going off on a little bit of a tangent here, I think, but uh, yeah, that's, that's how I would, I would suggest people look at it really, you know, yeah, no, I, I, it's incredible, and again, it just it goes against what a lot of people think, which is incredible. I w now I want to talk about the mental side of the game because you shot sixty eight and seventy one in that stretch, and you said in the article that you were, you know, you were just going to assume that that was you were going to shoot under par regularly, and then twenty eight rounds, the next twenty eight rounds around the same course that you shot sixty eight and seventy one, you never broke par. You had a few even par yeah. rounds, but never broke par, and you sort of you said about the mental barrier of scoring low. Can you talk about that? Because 
I think every golfer feels that, whether it be shooting under par, breaking 90, breaking 80, they've all been close, and then there's a, a collapse or, a, you know, the, the shank comes out of nowhere. Talk to us about that mental barrier. Yeah, I think one of the most kind of important things, and this is like my own experience, obviously there's people who have gotten far better at golf than I have, but what I kind of learned from trying to, you know, get the handicap down a lot in a relatively short period of time is just how important like patience is. Um, and basically like one of the hardest things in golf improvement, I think is perseverance to kind of keep going when you feel like you're putting in an awful lot of time and work and effort and maybe even money and it's not showing up in your scores right away. I think that's when a lot of people get discouraged and, you know, back off what they were, what they were working on then, you know, and revert to their kind of comfort zone of stuff that they can shoot, you know, pretty regularly without, which is their normal zone of scoring, you know, where I think people get into a little bit of trouble with their mental game sometimes is that it's almost like any time that they have a good round going and then the round, you know, doesn't finish how they'd like it to, or they leave a bad score go they kind of tell themselves that they choked or they threw it away or they fucked it up or whatever, you know? Um, but really like oftentimes what it is, is it's just that that person's skill level caught up with them. Like it takes a lot of, in my opinion, golf rounds and a lot of golf practice to really change the, the golfer that you are as such. So if let's just say if your you know, average score is let's say eight over par, four over per nine and if you shoot one over or even par for nine holes and you end up shooting like six or seven over for the back nine and you know you shoot your average score people always assume like you threw it away choked you know couldn't handle the pressure of the good round but like if you've played hundreds and hundreds of rounds where your scoring average is about eight over all that might have happened that day is just by variance, you happen to have a good string of holes and you happen to have a slightly bad string of holes. Like just as easily, we see players shoot six or seven over on the front nine and then they shoot one or two over on the back nine. And it's just the same thing. It's it's just their variance, you know? Um, so what I would say to people like is that you need to have a lot of rounds of golf to really actually see if you've improved as a golfer, like it's so easy for a bad shot to pop up anywhere or a bad stretch of holes to pop up anywhere that that doesn't really mean that like you're choking or that you can't hold it together or anything like that. It's, I don't mean this in an offensive way. It's just, you're just not quite that good yet. You, you need to keep going with it. And as you get in that situation more often, you gradually have a round or two where you actually finish really strong. And that's when you get a, a, you know, a new sense of comfort. You actually realize, all right, I can shoot this. And then it might happen again and again. And then there'll be another day where you revert back to what happened in the past. And it's not a case you've gotten any worse. There is times when definitely like you can get ahead of yourself mentally and you start making poor decisions or, you know, you leave one bad shot kind of spiral into the next two or three holes that's what I would say choking is when you start making crazy decisions or you almost kind of give up because you have a bad hole and you had a good score going, but definitely like people need to get into the mindset like that. An 18 hole round of golf or looking even at say two, nine holes. There's just so much variance can go into what you actually shoot to not worry too much about what happens as such. And that's where 
the stats keeping can be really useful because even if your scores aren't improving in the short term, if you can see that in different realms, you're improving in these different categories, you basically just, just need to be patient enough then and wait for some rounds where two or three of those categories line up together. And that's where you have your great scoring days, where if people are only measuring score, it can be a very long time in terms of seeing the changes there because it's just so easy for something small to go wrong in 18 holes that doesn't allow you basically see the scores that you want to see. Uh, well, I want to finish up because we're, we're already an hour and a, a, what, 12 minutes in. Uh, we're talking about the professional game, obviously the likes of Bryson, uh, who is pushing the boundaries of kind of what's possible when it comes to swing speed for a professional golfer. It's almost, you, you have to talk about Bryson these days, it's almost impossible not to when you talk about the professional game. Are you a fan personally of what he, what he does and how he goes about it? Well, like his golf game has improved. He's gotten better at golf. There's there's no doubt about that. You know, that can't really be argued. Um, he's after shooting up the world rankings. He's had, I think, four wins since his, say, transformation, one of them a major. He's been very close in a few others. Uh, he had five wins before his transformation, but obviously he was a pro for a long, like that's a, that's a longer time frame and a, a bigger amount of tournaments to base that on. But um the thing with what he's done like is that I don't see many players doing it because it's exceptionally hard to do. Like I've talked to a lot of like a few different players on the tour about it. And their kind of thing is like, it's just, man, it's so impressive that he's been able to go through such a transformation with say his body and his long game, but also get better at putting. Like he, he hasn't gotten worse. I don't think in, I remember looking at it in February when he was, or not in February, in June, sorry, when the PGA Tour started back up and it was his first few tournaments since he'd done this transformation. And he'd gotten better in every category, like off the tee, approach, short game, putting. They were all better than the previous season. So it's not a case of he got exceptionally strong in one area and the others got worse. He literally got better at everything. And that's just really hard to do when you put so much focus on one particular area of the game, you know? Um, so in terms of like, has it worked? I think absolutely when he's swinging that hard and when his ball is traveling that far through the air, there's definitely going to be weeks where he doesn't keep the ball on the golf course and it might look a bit foolish, but on weeks where he's hitting it reasonably well off the tee, he's just playing a completely different golf course to the other players. And why that's important at that level is that they're all so exceptionally skilled that you can't spot a player 30, 40, 50 yards on every hole and have a good chance of beating them. Now, there might be one or two players have an exceptionally hot week that week and end up nipping them by one or two shots. But going back to what I was talking about, like in terms of golf and the variance, if he's doing that for, like if he plays 23 events a year and he's hitting the driver relatively well for, say, half of those, for 12 or 13 of those, he's going to have a really good chance of winning probably all of those tournaments. He might win three of them, but like he's going to be right up there. And that's what drives you up the world rankings. That's what earns you crazy money. Like he was right up there in the FedEx Cup. He just sniffing... Uh, the US Open like it's it's as long as he keeps if he can keep driving it that well and that long 
it's not that hard for PGA Tour players to wedge it reasonably close to the hole, even, even if it's in the rough, and he's an exceptionally good putter. He's playing par fives like par fours. Like the amount of eagles he's racking up is crazy. So yeah, like it's it's one of those things that there's just no defense against that. You know, it's if you imagine basically saying to another PGA Tour player, can you imagine that on every hole, like he's about, he's almost 30 yards longer than the PGA Tour average. His average driving distance this year was like 322 and the average on tour is 296. And that's only measured on two holes around, by the way. So it might even be a bigger difference, but imagine basically saying to an average PGA Tour driver, which is someone like Colin Morikawa or Billy Horschel, um, or someone like this and saying to them on every single hole for the whole season on a par four, par five, you're allowed to pick up your ball and walk it 30 yards closer to the hole and put it down and hit it from there. Now there might be one or two more that are in the rough than where you're hitting from. But like imagine the difference that would have on their year, you know, and you can't, you can't isolate like what it would do in one tournament. You have to remember this is every single drive or every single hole he plays all year where this advantage can pop up and all he needs to do is get hot for a few of those weeks and he's probably going to win the tournament. Like I, th- I think we'll see definitely weeks where like he misses the cut because he can't keep the driver on the golf course, but we're going to see weeks where he gets hot and he wins by like six or seven because when all that comes together, it's just really, really hard. It's like Cameron champ. Like he's essentially the same distance as Bryson. He's wildly inconsistent but he's won on the PGA, PGA Tour three times because when he gets hot and he's that long, it's exceptionally hard to beat him, you know? And that's that's basically where where I think they stand, you know? Yeah, well, like the BMW you were talking about where, you know, Cantley needed the best putting round ever to beat him. Other than that... But in a playoff. Yeah, and apart from Cantley, the next person was four or five shots off Bryson. And that, yeah. that 18th hole in the playoff that we saw so many times, Cantlay was going in with seven irons and six irons and Bryson was pitching wedges the whole time. That yeah. that difference is, you know, for a professional golfers, that is just massive. Yeah, so I think if you forecast that over, you know, multiple seasons, basically, it's like, man, how many events is he is he going to win? Yeah, it is. And look at separating his golf game to his personality is also very different as well but what he's doing and pushing it the boundaries and all that's incredible do you think the game has a problem with distance Mike this is the last thing I'll let you go because we keep hearing about people complaining about they want to roll the the balls back the drivers back the PGR the USPGR talking about capping the length of drivers to 46, 48 I can't remember what it was and Phil was very much against it do you think there's an issue with distance in the golf game? Um, like the only way I would say is like, there's definitely no issue in the amateur game. If we just look at the professional game, I haven't looked into it enough. Like I, I honestly haven't studied it enough. If they need to keep making golf courses longer and then they're more expensive to build and more expensive to maintain. And now it means that you've players walking, you know, an extra 30 yards back and then up on every hole that makes the game slower. Then maybe I think golf is exceptionally exciting as it is at the moment on TV. Like I think anyone who watched the PGA tour this year, you know, there was really good tournaments week in, week out. Um, do they need to change the golf ball or the equipment? Honestly, I don't really know. But that's a separate argument to will rolling anything back change the advantage that the long hitters have? And the answer to that is no. And it might actually give them a bigger advantage. 
because now you're bringing the shorter players even further back from the hole. Um, and it's a big difference going from, I would say, like a wedge to an eight iron than it is from maybe an eight iron to a five iron for the shorter players. So, and I've heard Mark Brody talk about this too. Like, and that's something that he talks about is if they do roll the ball back or change the equipment, which they might have to do for keeping courses relevant, it's going to play into the long hitters' hands even more, which would maybe be, you know, a backfiring from the governing bodies who are considering that, you know. It's a decision I'm glad that I'm not a, that I don't have to make, you know. Yeah, no, it's fascinating just to see the the arguments for and for and against. But but then Bryson is the first sort of outlier in that, and who far who knows how far he'll bring it? Who knows how many other players will start doing that? If everyone's hitting a three fifty, then obviously that that's a bit different than three yeah. three ten, three twenty, whatever it is. But uh, Mike, I think we'll leave it there. We're an hour and twenty in. If anyone's still listening to this, a fair play to you. Is, uh, he's are obviously big golf nuts. Let me know if he's are still listening to this. Uh, Mike, I could talk to you for hours about this sort of stuff as I really enjoy it. But um, thank you very much for coming on. Where can the people find you, Mike, on your social medias? Um, so I have a Twitter and an Instagram account. It's fit underscore four underscore golf and then i have a website fitforgolf.blog yeah 100 percent. well worth uh, following mike on social media it's great content Um, your instagram and, and twitter stuff's fantastic and for free as well uh and then obviously the fit for golf blog and app um which i joined today um i'll be giving updates probably and how i'm getting on and how i feel about it I'll, I'll, I'll obviously give you a shout on twitter how i'm getting on as well but mike i really do appreciate you coming on thank you very much very knowledgeable uh i'll get definitely have you back on someday as well so thank you very much mike thanks a lot Stephen. my pleasure cheers